Beloved, there are different ways that you can partition the 39 books of the Old Testament. Probably the most commonly known is the Law and the Prophets. Uh, You can break it into smaller divisions too, and one such division is called the historical books, the 12 books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ruth. And they're called the historical books because even though all of Scripture is, of course, a perfectly accurate historical account because it is the Word of God, the historical books have a special emphasis on God's working through history, through His sovereign control. And the interesting thing is the book of Esther is very unique in one certain way. It shares much of the same with the other historical books of God's sovereign working through history, Israel facing a grave threat from her enemy. But Esther is unique in one very interesting way from not just the historical books, but all the rest of the books of the Bible, namely that God is not directly referenced once in the entire letter. If you were to search the letter, you won't find the word God or Lord once. But what is unmistakable is the sovereign ruling control of the God of history over what is taking place for the nation of Israel while in Persian exile. God is unseen, but he moves powerfully behind the scenes. It is the invisible hand of the sovereign God of history, the underlying stream of God's unchallenged sovereignty that jumps out from the pages of the book of Esther. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is writing this second letter to this beloved church, this church which was, we know from the first letter, even though only several months old at that time, a mature church, amazingly so to the point that they were a model church, they were an example church. But the situation is, as long as on this side of eternity, as long as churches continue, problems will continue. And that was the case for the Thessalonians. In the first letter, Paul gave them a gentle correction over some end times misunderstanding, some end times error that they had, or maybe I should say concern. Uh, Even in the short months from the time that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had left them, some of their beloved brothers and sisters had gone home to be with the Lord, and they were concerned because Christ hadn't returned yet, and they didn't know if their departed brothers and sisters might miss out somehow. So Paul gave them a gentle correction, especially in chapter 4. Here in the second letter, they have catapulted to the other end of the spectrum where now they are concerned they had come under the influence and sway of some false teachers that had told them that Christ had already returned and they are the afflictions and the persecutions they were suffering was because they were in the day of the Lord and they were under this influence even though the apostle Paul had told them very clearly in the first letter that they are not in the day of the Lord that it has not come yet and in fact the day of the Lord is not intended for the children of God it is for the children of darkness. On um, Paul what he does here in verses 3 through 12 is he gives a detailed eschatology to correct their error that they had had from this false doctrine and to comfort them to again let them know that you are not in the day of the Lord, and in fact, you're not going to go through the day of the Lord. 
Our passage this morning is the rest of this passage. It ends in verse 12. So it's verses 6 through 12. Back last week in verses 3 through 5, Paul told them that the day of the Lord will be accompanied by the rebellion of the apostasy and the revelation of the Antichrist. And so what's interesting, the main subject clearly in verses 3 through 12 is the Antichrist. He is the main subject there, but the primary protagonist, the true protagonist, is God himself. So while the subject is primarily the Antichrist, God, the sovereign God over history, is the one that we will mark off here. This is not like the book of Esther. We will see the Lord directly referenced here, but the underlying stream of his control and his unfolding plan of his good plan of history is what jumps out and what we see here beloved as we would unpack verses 6 through 12 is God is the restrainer God is the executioner and God is the condemner and we can ask the question why is this here for you beloved it is so that your Lord Jesus your father God who loves you and has given you eternal comfort and good hope by grace would comfort and strengthen your heart in every good word and in every good work. Our passage begins in verse 6, but let me begin back in verse 1 to set the stage of the word of God here. This is first, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And beloved, this is the word of God that's been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So, first, God is the restrainer. God is in complete control. God restrains now. God restrains even now, and God will reveal then. He will allow the revelation of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the beast, at that point in time in God's good timing. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. In his time, in the time that God has ordained, that he may be revealed, may be unveiled. 
apocalypto, the word from which we get our word apocalypse, or the revelation as in the title of the last book of the Bible. And what's amazing is, you see, for us, for, for the New Testament reader, when we read this, this is new information that's not contained anywhere else in the pages of Scripture, at least in the New Testament. So for us, it's new information, but for the Thessalonians, it is review. When Paul had taught them out of Daniel in those several weeks he was with them, he apparently taught them some details about the restrainer. And that's why he says, you know what restrains him now. And in fact, this is right in line with what the apostle had said in the immediate verse before, back in verse 5. Do you remember? He said, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You see, Paul, <coughs> excuse me, in the several weeks he had been with them, had done a deep dive into eschatology. And if they had remembered and rested upon the truth that they had already received, they wouldn't have been suddenly shaken and continually disturbed. And even more importantly, they would have been taken in by the lure of the false doctrine that the false teachers had brought about the return of Christ. And what he says is, you know what restrains him now. So they knew because it was a review. Do you know what restrains him now? Well, let's ask the question, what power. It's very simple, I would say. Who is the only power that can hold back Satan? It is God. It is the Holy Spirit. Now, what we might run into here is a little interesting because here in verse 6, it says, you know what restrains him now. Verse 7, in the middle, it says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So there's a, in the Greek, there's a neuter pronoun and there is a masculine pronoun. And so, we might rightly kind of, well, what is this talking about when what? Because the Holy Spirit is not a what. But what he's talking about here is the power and the person. He, the he in verse 7, is the Holy Spirit. The what in verse 6 is the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's actually interesting, this isn't the first time that the Holy Spirit is referenced with the neuter and the masculine. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, we see the same dynamic. And I think what is at work here is when you think of the three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, God the Spirit, the Spirit is the only title that is an impersonal title. The Father, the title Father is a person. It's a personal title. The title Son is a personal title. The title, the word Spirit is an impersonal word describing, of course, a person. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third member of the Trinity. So that is what is at work here, the person and the power. And beloved, basically what Paul is saying here, what God is teaching you and me is that even right now, sin is tempered in its spread and its intensity by the restraining ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And I would say this is really just a outflow. It's a manifestation of the common mercy of God. We think of the common mercy of God. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The just farmer receives rain on his or her field. The unjust farmer also receives rain on his or her field. And what we have here is part of God's common mercy to all of mankind. Believing mankind and unbelieving mankind is this restraining influence that man in his sinfulness is not allowed by God to be as wicked as he would be. We continue on, look at verse 
7. Paul continues, he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And this is no surprise. Read the headline. Turn on the TV. Look at your social media. Don't scroll at night because that's when you're praying. But whatever source we look at, we know, everyone knows that lawlessness is already at work. So lowercase a apostasy, lowercase r rebellion continue until his coming and in fact will intensify. But continue on verse 7, he says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That is when, in a sense, all hell will break loose on earth because there will be an unfettered outpouring of the wickedness of unregenerate hearts in man. Now, even here, the way the New American Standard translated taken out of the way, the, our theological bristles on our neck might raise up just a little bit there because it almost, sound, or almost seems like God the Holy Spirit is being taken out of the way by a greater force. It's really saying he's moved to one side. We can think of it this way. Think of a uh, dam with doors. It has a vast reservoir of water behind it. And then the doors are moved to the side and it unleashes the mighty torrent of water pouring forth. Well, the doors are still there, but the restraining influence is no longer there. In the same way, God the Holy Spirit is still omniscient. He is still sovereignly in control, but he is moved out of the way so his restraining force has been removed so that the unhindered outpouring of sin and wickedness will be permitted for a time, for a short time on earth. The rains are removed from lawlessness and the satanically inspired, the satanically energized rebellion is unleashed. And just the word mystery, uh, it's a Greek word mysterion from which we get our English word mystery. A New Testament mystery is not obscure or secret or puzzling. It's not a tantalizing secret. It's not an esoteric puzzle that is only for the spiritual elite in some kind of rarefied atmosphere. A New Testament mystery is a truth ordained by God in eternity past that is kept concealed until the appropriate time when God said it is time for it to be unconcealed. It is time for it to be revealed. For example, Romans 16, verse 25 and 26, Paul there writes, according to the revelation, according to the unveiling, according to the revealing of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested. And the time, the proper time from God, we just keep moving on to verse 8 where Paul says, and then that lawless one will be revealed. So he is restrained now. He will be revealed then. Now, Paul told us in, back in verse 3, he used the word abomination. We know from verses 3 through 5 and up that clearly Paul had taught the Thessalonian believers from the book of Daniel. And by his reference of the abomination in verse 3, Paul is telling us he's in essence citing Daniel 9.27 where we know that what Daniel called and Jesus called the abomination of desolation, that the precise time this takes place is at the midpoint of the Daniel's 70th week. And this is when Daniel and Jesus, or excuse me, this is when uh, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast, will erect himself, so to speak, in the temple and demand worship that he is forbidden for anyone else. This is what Daniel and Jesus call the abomination of desolation. And so that is the precise then that we know that it is time for him to be revealed so that he will be revealed. He will be shown to, 
truly be who he is, even a fulfillment of God's prophecy. And just when we think of the mystery to kind of help us wrap our minds around this a little more, turn over for a moment to Ephesians chapter 3. There was another mystery that has already been revealed. I'll begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 7, but it's in particular verses 5 and 6 that I want to focus on here. Ephesians 3, 1, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So the mystery of Christ, specifically the mystery of Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ on equal footing was something that was not revealed in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in Christ. So also on that day, on the exact midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, will be the unveiling, the revealing of the son of destruction for what he truly is. So... God, the true protagonist, is the restrainer. We move on to the rest of verse 8 through verse 9, and God is the executioner. You see, God restrains, God reveals, and God will ruin. The man of lawlessness revelation is followed here by his execution. In verse 8 in the middle, it is he whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth will slay him. This is not beloved annihilation. This is execution. And this is an execution that keeps on executing. This is a destruction that keeps on destroying by a destroyer who keeps on destroying, Lord Jesus himself. And he continues on, he says, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So Lord Jesus will slay him and will bring to an end <coughs> excuse me, by the appearance of his coming. He will make completely powerless, abolish. Even this word bring to an end also means to destroy. This is, this word here describes the total destruction of a superior force conquering an inferior force. In the same way light conquers and destroys darkness, so also Lord Jesus will conquer and destroy Satan and his ambassador, the beast. And the word bring to an end, this is the same word that we see, for example, from the pen of the author of Hebrews. In the beautiful two verses, there are so many beautiful verses in Hebrews. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 are rich and near and dear to my heart. Verse 14, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son, the author of Hebrews says that he might render powerless, that he might bring to an end, that he might abolish him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Or the Apostle Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, as Paul is writing from his Roman imprisonment awaiting execution, Paul says to Timothy, Our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished, brought to an end, rendered powerless death 
and brought life and immortality to light, excuse me, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And what's interesting now as we go on from verse 8 to verse 9 there, he was focusing in verse 8 there on the true protagonist, God. But now he moves back to the main subject, namely the man of lawlessness. Look at verse 9. He says, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, in accord with the energeia, the energizing. The, basically, this man of lawlessness is authorized and energized by Satan. He's Satan's instrument, uh, endowed with Satan's spirit, marked by <clears throat> Satan's character. And he continues, he is coming as in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, literally all lying wonders. So these power signs and lying wonders are performed by the devil-controlled, Satan-empowered Antichrist. And literally, these are pseudo-wonders, wonders, lying wonders. Uh, Jesus himself, <clears throat> in the Olivet Discourse, where he had that long discourse on the end times, used the same kind of language as recorded by Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 44, Christ said, false Christs and false prophets, literally pseudo-Christs and pseudo-prophets, lying Christs and lying prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Now, when we think of the signs and wonders that Jesus is speaking of, when we think of the lying wonders and the powers and signs that what Paul is talking about here, understand this, these are lying wonders, but not in the sense that there's some kind of parlor trick or smoke and mirrors. These are real miracles, real powers, real signs, but they have a lying message. Oh, it's the same kind of dynamic. Beloved, this is all part of God's sovereign control. Luther said the devil is God's devil. And what he meant by that is not that God's holy or purity is any, in any way stained by the devil, but the devil can't do anything outside of God's sovereign control. There's not a beloved, dear friend, <clears throat> there is not a renegade molecule in the entire universe, material or immaterial, whether or not Spirits and immaterial have molecules, I don't know, but I think you get the point. God is in control. And God does at times let Satan and his emissaries control the physical world. You can think of Pharaoh's magicians where Moses and God's supernatural power through Moses was greater than the magicians of Pharaoh. But the magicians did real miracles, but they were lying miracles. That is what he is talking about here. Also, beloved, when we see this, we see this mockery, we see this parody of the Antichrist who tries to usurp the true Christ. And so besides the title of Antichrist and Christ, even the language Paul uses here uses the same words for both the true and the anti. Both Christ and the Antichrist have a coming, a parousia. They both have a revelation, an apocalypsis. And even this energizing power, we see here in verse 9 that it is energized by the power of Satan. In verse 11, we'll see power that is energized by God. So that is the stage here. But, beloved, we understand that this is not a contest. This is not a 
fair fight. When we think of a good action story or we think of a good book, uh, Louis L'Amour, you know, the, the kind of Western where the hero comes in and the good story is it, it looks like the hero is about to be defeated by the bad guy or the bad guys. And then at the last second, he snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. This is nothing like this. This is Godzilla versus Bambi. There is no contest here because look at what it says. He says he will slay him with the breath of his mouth. Poof. That is all it takes. Like the blast of a mighty fiery furnace, our Lord will slay the Antichrist and Satan. And this is the same language as well that Isaiah used. Isaiah 11 verse 4, the prophet says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and watch this with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked so there is no balance so while we see this parallelism between the two we understand that there is there's an infinite difference in power that there is no contest both comings of christ and the antichrist will be personal they'll be visible and they will be powerful now one thing to understand here too When we move from the revelation to the execution in verse 8, it's one sentence. But Paul jumped forward three and a half years. He jumped forward. So the abomination of desolation is at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. So even though in that one sentence it looks like it happens immediately after, there's actually a three and a half year gap. He jumps from the midpoint to the end of the week. He jumps to the end point of the seven-year period that in scripture by Jesus and others is called the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's distress. And this is that seven year period when God's judgment is poured out on the world for its sin. For example, Jesus also in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 verse 21, he said, then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So it is that midpoint, three and a half years. Uh, We can think of the book of Revelation. We covered this in the Thursday morning men's Bible study. Revelation 11.3 and 12.6, it is 1,260 days, which with the Jewish calendar is three and a half years. It's 42 months, according to Revelation 11.2, It is a time, times, and half a time, according to Daniel 7.25, and Revelation 12.14. And beloved, again, as believers, we need to believe in the clarity of Scripture. I mentioned this last week, but do you remember even Daniel, when Gabriel the angel was giving the revelation, Daniel 7, 16, Daniel said, I asked him the exact meaning of all of this. Daniel 9, 22, Gabriel gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And then, Similarly, Daniel 10, 11, and 14. So, beloved, we understand that this is to be understood. 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. This is the word of God. And it's at that point that during this tribulation period, after Jesus has rescued and reunited the believers that we read of back in 1 Thessalonians 4, his fire wrath is being poured out. And even as God's righteous, fiery wrath is being poured out with natural disasters and supernatural carnage, that even then the truth will be preached. The truth will be preached 
according to John and Revelation, by 144,000 Jewish witnesses. It'll be preached by two very unique God-empowered witnesses. It will be preached, according to John and Revelation, by an angel flying through the midheavens, and there will be a tremendous harvest of souls even during this time, and those tribulation saints will also preach the truth with their words and with their blood. To God be the glory. Then, when the Lion of Judah does come, he will slay with the breath of his mouth, poof, and he will slay with the sword of his mouth. Uh, turn for a moment to Revelation 19, or you can listen as I read verses 11 through 21 to get an expanded picture of precisely what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2. Revelation 19, verse 11, John writes, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. In his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, which on a side note, that's the church at this point. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. The beast is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came out of the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We will be with him as his army. Angels may attend as well, but Jesus Christ is the only active warrior at that point with the breath of his mouth, with the sword of his mouth. Then, while we're following this, 1,000 years later, well, actually 75 days, 1,000 years later, that comes from Daniel 12. If I, you want, I can talk to you about that. But 1,000 years and 75 days later, we, we can go to the final end of both Satan and the beast, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Revelation 20 Verse 10, and the devil, this is again at the end of the millennium, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the execution that keeps on executing, the destruction that keeps on destroying by the destroyer who keeps on destroying, which is God, not Satan. Now, we might have a beloved brother or sister that might be a little different 
eschatological persuasion, which is fine. As I mentioned before, we love the fellowship around that. That is a joy. That's, uh, you know, you just had to throw in the millennium. Well, I didn't suck that on my thumb. Just for a moment, Revelation 20, verse 1. I won't read all of verse 1 through 7, but let me grab some things out of here. Verse 2, bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, until the thousand years were completed. Verse 4, at the end, and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The end of verse 6, and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then continuing on, verse 7, and when the thousand years are completed. Beloved, dear brother and sister, five times in seven verses, a thousand years, a thousand years, times five. We believe in the clarity of Scripture, the exact meaning, the insight with understanding as we read in the book of Daniel. But back here in 2 Thessalonians, uh, think of the appearance of his coming at the end of verse 8, literally the epiphany of his presence, the glory of his presence. This is the radiance of his coming. And this kind of dynamic, Paul combines the glory of the first coming of Jesus with the second coming in Titus 2, verses 11 and 13. There, Paul wrote to Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Then verse 13, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We will see that glory when we go home to be with the Lord. And those who are alive on earth through the tribulation, which won't be us if we are believers, they will see that physical manifestation on that day. And even at the beginning of verse 13 again, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved brother and sister, we don't look for the Antichrist. We look for the true Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Lion of Judah, who is the restraint. Well, God is a restrainer. The Holy Spirit is a restrainer. God is a restrainer. God is the executor, and that would be the Son. And third, God is the condemner. He is the judge. We see this in verses 10 through 12. He restrains, he executes, and he condemns, he judges. And what's interesting here is Paul pivots from the main subject of the capital L lawless one to the lowercase l lawless ones, plural. And the common thread between the encouragement that Paul gives in chapter 1 and the correction and the instruction and encouragement he gives in chapter 2, the common thread is the assurance that God will trouble the troublers. God will punish the persecutors. Look at verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for those who are perishing, the deception of wickedness, the deception of evil, the deception of unrighteousness, of iniquity, the deception of violence. Uh, the Greek word translated wickedness here was used to translate the Hebrew word in Genesis 6:11 of violence, that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and filled with violence. There is deception behind that. But beloved, understand this. Behind the great deception lies the great refusal. Look at the rest of verse 10. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Because they did not welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
They would have none of it. They gave it no welcome. They gave the love of the truth no reception, no love. Calvin said this. He said, those who perish, quote, are deserving of it even more, did of their own accord choose death. That is what is at work here. Beloved, dear friend, God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And that is what is at work here. And error is not, even the false doctrine is pernicious and dangerous and as injurious as it is, that is not the ultimate root of problem. The fatal downward slippery path begins with a love for evil. Evil is the ultimate root problem. And notice also right there in the middle of verse 10, they are perishing because they did not welcome the love of the truth. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. In Scripture consistently, without exception, salvation is because God, not because man. Condemnation is because man. Now, God is sovereign. In eternity past, he foreordained whatsoever may come to pass, which is right and good and appropriate. But condemnation is because man. And we see that in living color right here in verse 10. And part of the dynamic here is in God's good justice. He will, God will use the evil consequences of sin in his punishment of the sinner. And because they did not welcome the love of the truth, they will suffer the penalty of being hardened. Look at verse 11. And for this reason, this is one of those very simple, straightforward, easy to understand verses that I'm sure never gave you any quandary in terms of the meaning. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, a deluding energeia. This is the energizing power of God, authorized and energized by God, a deluding influence, a wandering influence, a straying from the truth influence. You see, when people reject the good, they welcome the evil. And continuing on, Paul says, so that, this is a purpose, God sends upon them this deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. They might believe the lie, those lying wonders, that pseudo-truth. Because of their rejection of the revelation they have, they will believe the lie. And then continuing verse 12, in order that, another purpose statement, Hina, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So Paul is describing this unique time in the future, but this verse right here also is under the umbrella of even the mystery of lawlessness, which is already at work right now uh, among us. They delighted in wickedness. They willingly chose wickedness. And before we move on too far, let's go back for a moment. How does our holy God send a deluding influence? Well, turn for a moment or listen to uh, Romans chapter 1. Um, verses 24 through 28, I won't read them all, but I'll bring captures out of it to give you an idea of what is at work here. Romans 1, <clears throat> 24 Therefore, because in verse 23 they had exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, that's what Paul's referencing there, in that future time they will exchange the glory of God for the image of the beast from the abomination desolation of four. But verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. 
Verse 26, next phase. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. There's an escalation here. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And then finally, Look at verse 32, or listen. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And beloved, how sad and how tragic that is what we see in sad, horrifying, liver, living color of sin, depravity, wickedness, celebrated, lifted up, and exalted. And that is what is being talked about here. And then, to even help us understand a little bit further, I should have uh, kept my finger back where we're at, but in Romans 9, verses 17 and 18, we have the historical example of God hardening Pharaoh. Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and, and you see here God's sovereign control over history, even in a wicked man like Pharaoh. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, God has mercy on whom he desires, and God hardens whom he desires. You see, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard and God let it be hardened to its full extent. That is a dynamic. And in the same way, the people that Paul is talking about have the same kind of hardening, intensified effect in their heart as part of God's righteous judgment. God, we could put it this way, gave them over to their deliberate, self-imposed spiritual blindness. He gave them over to the inward working of the inescapable consequences of evil, of sin, of rejection of God. And this is not just a New Testament teaching. Perhaps Paul had also taught the Thessalonian believers out of Solomon in Proverbs 5.22 where Solomon wrote, The wicked is captured by his own iniquities and he will be held with the cords of his sin. Beloved, this is where the sinner receives the fitting recompense for his sin. In very much the same way we saw back in chapter 1, that we in Christ, going through our persecutions, going through our afflictions, we are being fitted for our eternal inheritance in heaven in something of a similar fashion, so also these people are being fitted for the just recompense of God. And Perhaps Paul also had taught the Thessalonians from the oldest written book of the Bible, Job. Job chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Job said, Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Watch this. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Beloved, this is the word of God from old to new. And Go back for a moment back here in 2 Thessalonians for those who perish, for those who are perishing. That is the consequences, that is the just punishment at that time and this time as well. You may remember that uh, Jesus, in, recorded in Luke 13, we had, he had some of the religious leaders say, hey, they referenced a historic event where the Tower of Siloam fell over and killed a number of people. 
And the religious leaders' questions was, did that happen to them because they were greater sinners than us or others? And what Jesus said in Luke 13, 3 was, he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That is the outcome for anyone, man or woman, who dies in their sin. But there is another side of God's righteous judgment. John 3, 16 God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Dear friend, there is a way of escape. And this is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians back in the first letter. First Thessalonians 1 verse 6, he said to the Thessalonians, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord having welcomed the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 13, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. We reject the word of God, or we receive and welcome and accept God's binding, timeless truth. The Thessalonians heard the gospel preached and they welcomed it in. And as I said back in 1 Thessalonians, we could say that they said amen to God's amen. Beloved, dear friend, he is a sovereign God of history. And John Stott had this to say about that. He said, quote, history is not a random series of meaningless events. It's a succession of periods and happenings under the sovereign rule of God. We have the historical account in 2 Thessalonians 2 of not what has already happened in history, but what will happen inescapably in history. And I will close with Peter, the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, at the unveiling of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. May the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest upon us. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the timeless element truth behind it. As said more than once, this was written some 2,000 years ago to a group of believers in a very different culture with very different language. But Lord, it could have been written this morning to me, to us. Dear God, be glorified in your children. Be glorified in your church. It is for your glory, for your honor. Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we fellowship, that we do all these things. Amen.